0: Hi, this is Tana Pigeon, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the Tale of a Manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes there will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the first episode of season two, we meet the ill-fated Gamlin, Tana, Nafia the Small, Flick, and Ratleg. They are all members of a thieves guild called the Weeping Eyes, based in Camertine's capital city of Solmoral. In the middle of the night, They interrupt an initiation ritual held by the rival gang, known as the Church. Their intention is to deliver a clear message to anyone else who might want to sign up to join the enemy's ranks. Unfortunately for them, they have been betrayed and their attack is expected. The hunters find that they have become the prey when they walk right into the Church's trap. After a violent skirmish, this particular group of weeping eyes are reduced from five members to one. Ratleg with all of his friends lying in pools of blood around him, is spared. But whether he would be better off dead is not yet known. Chapter 2. Part 1. Day 1. Two and a half hours after midnight. Shanae looked up from the body. Con's dead, she muttered. Yellowfly clenched his jaw. That man. He struck his captive in the face with the pommel of his longsword. Was a friend of ours. Ratleg sank down to his knees, bleeding from a split lip. How did you know we were coming? Call, Tamlin. Yellowfly indicated the bodies of their defeated enemies. Make sure they're dead and check out their bodies. See if they have anything useful on them. The two new recruits got to work immediately, as Yellowfly turned back to the man on his knees. You winks have a lot to learn. You'll have to tell me sometime why you chose the losing side. Anyway, to answer your question, it was the barmaid. She did us a bad turn a few years ago, and instead of hurting her in retaliation, we put a mark on her baby. Told her if she wanted the kid to reach six years of age, she'd better come up with some way to make amends with us soon. She's been looking for a way to make things right with the church ever since. Her kid's four years old now, running out of time, you see? But she gave us this. She gave us, well, She gave us you. Now I'm wondering what you can give. Ratleg coughed, but did not dare rise to his feet. (coughs) The blonde woman crouching over the dead priest, Kern, she'd call him, had eyes that spoke of murder. He had better give up something good, or he'd never leave this basement. But nothing came to mind. He tried to stall. He needed time to think.
1: Doesn't this barmaid know she's as good as dead
0: for betraying the eye? He asked. Oh yes, I expect she does, if she were to stay. She'll want to back up her kid and move out of Silmoro pretty soon. Tomorrow would be wise. Still, she gets to live, and her kid gets to live. Yellowfly sheathed his sword and looked blandly over at his two new recruits. Anything? Hmm? Not really, the slim one replied. One of these daggers is fair quality. Well, you keep it then. Go ahead and load all these bodies into those barrels. They're empty. Cook's gonna get rid of them tomorrow. Well, it's almost tomorrow already, isn't it? Almost time to go. So, my friend. And now he looked at Ratleg with dead eyes. Unless you want to go into one of these barrels, I'd suggest you give us something good. I think Shawnee here would enjoy putting your eyes out before she stuck you in the gut and bled you empty. Just look at her face. I don't think she cares that you aren't the one who killed her, friend. Yellowfly crossed his arms and leaned back against a large crate. Well, what'll it be? Have you got something I can use? Ratleg coughed again. (coughs) and then nodded.
1: Yeah, I got something.
0: Okay, wow. Not that I needed convincing, but boy, the power of fiction just blows me away. Last time, while playing through episode one, I found that I quickly came to care about the fates of characters who had only just been dreamt up. They hadn't even been rolled up. Well, obviously the weeping eyes have lost, and the church has won, at least in this opening battle of what might become a guild war? Well, we'll see about that. More immediately, by my own rule, these victors, the church, now become my player characters. There are four surviving priests, that's what they're called by outsiders and insiders alike. But who are they? The woman with a scar on her chin is called Shawnee. She took a cut on the elbow, but her concern at present is for the big man who lies motionless at the foot of the stairs. That was Kern. He and Shawnee had been enjoying a friendship with, well, we'll just say flexible boundaries. The two new recruits are Tamlin and Cole, and the man who seems to have arranged this ambush is known as Yellowfly. He's the eldest of them, though none of them are past their late twenties. Anyway, it's time to roll some dice, put pencil to paper, and see what kind of people they really are. Using BX rules, rolling up these three will only take a few minutes. And that's for all of them. My house rule is to roll 3d6 straight down the line and re-roll anything under a 6, at least for PCs. There will be chances for stat increases if characters survive to higher levels, but more on that when we get there. Let's roll up the first PC, right now. Getting 3d6. Okay, ready to go. Strength. 11. Intelligence. Whoa, a 15. Very good. Wisdom. Hot dice. A 13. Another good roll. Dexterity. A 10. Constitution. 9. Charisma. I've got a 9. Well, my instincts tell me that this is Yellowfly. He's not high ranking by any means, just a lesser captain. But he has the nicest bed in their apartments because he's the leader. And he's the leader because he's smart. Yellowfly is a trained fighter. That's a little retcon of the fight scene, I know, but it really changes nothing, so I'm going with it. Another house rule I use is that first level characters start with their maximum possible hit points. So he starts with eight. Yellowfly is the eldest and best educated among them. He's not old, just shy of 30, but his hairline has already started to retreat at the corners. He has bags under his eyes. His height makes him cut an imposing figure and gives his arm a good reach. His brown eyes flash with intelligence. Who's up next? Let's find out. Strength. Well, well, well. I've got a 16 for strength. That is really something. These dice are on fire today. Intelligence. Seven. Wisdom. 11. Dexterity. Nine. Constitution. 11. Charisma. 10. This must be one of the new recruits. Cole is tall and broad. He has good instincts. He isn't stupid, but he has essentially no education. He is sensitive about this and will not tolerate any insults aimed at this shortcoming. He wears his long, dark hair in a ponytail. Cole is of the fighter class, too, and has eight hit points. Next. Strength. 11. Intelligence. 8. Wisdom. Ooh, a six. Dexterity. 15. Nice roll. Constitution. 13, another good roll. Charisma. A nine. This is Shawnee. Part of me wants to make her a fighter, but considering Cole's stats, she's going to be better suited as a thief. Five hit points after her constitution bonus. We already know she has a scar on her chin. She also has straight yellow hair that hangs loose down her back. Her lips are a little too thin and her eyes are a little too small. Shawnee has a habit of falling in love quickly Kern is not the first of her attachments to fall to the knife, and Shawne is getting a reputation for being bad luck. But the men who know her well, know better than to mention that in front of her. And finally, I need another thief, but let's see what the dice give us. Strength. 11. Intelligence. 9. Wisdom. 16. My goodness, these dice. Dexterity. 14. Constitution. 8. Charisma. 10. This is Tamlin. And although I need another thief, these stats really point him in the direction of a cleric. Does that make sense? Okay, I think I know how to handle this. This guild is, after all, known as The Church. They would definitely have members who carried on the beliefs and practices of their founder. Tamlin IS a cleric, he just doesn't know it yet. In BX and d it takes a full level before a cleric comes into the powers of their class. Tamlin sees himself as a common thief, but in his heart, he is devoted to Shartoon, the so-called happy prisoner and patron saint of thieves. As a cleric, he starts with six hit points, but after his constitution penalty, he'll have only five.
1: Hello there, I'm Calvin Piper, host and DM of the Wild Magic School Bus, the most unprofessional D&D podcast you'll ever hear. Excuse me, how? can you call us unprofessional? Uh, One second, Ohiana. I'm recording a trailer. Join me and my friends each Monday as we travel through the fantasy world of Talmud Mall, a land divided between magic and man. Hold on. uh, Are we just going to exclude lizards from that? And robotic sidekicks that were once lizards? Oddly specific, but sure, we can include them. So come along for the ride on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows, and listen to D&D The Way it Was Meant to Be Endured. All right, everyone on the bus. All right. Hey, uh, Zeph, What's a podcast? Oh, ah, uh, yeah. Well, ah, uh, Tabini. A podcast is when, when a group of people love each other very, very much, and they want to
0: leadership. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Its ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek,
1: to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. Subscribe today, the Starfleet Leadership Academy.
0: Chapter 2. Part 2. Day 1. Around Dawn. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I didn't draw a drop of blood with this thing, said Tamlin, handing the scabbarded longsword back to Yellowfly. Not to be ungrateful, but it just feels wrong in my hands. I just can't get used to the weight. Yellowfly frowned, but took the sword back. He indicated a locker beside his bed. If you can find something more suited to your taste in there, take it. But I don't think you'll find a better weapon than this. There's also that Wink's short sword. Shawnee's got it, but you could argue with her if you think it suits you better. Tamlin shook his head, walked over to the locker, and flipped up the lid. He started going through the contents, and before long selected a short handled mace with butterfly wing flanges. How about this? He asked, holding it up so Yellowfly could see. It's not a very good one, but it's yours if you want it. Here, catch. He tossed the long sword over to the younger man, who caught it. You're sure you're all right? Yellowfly was referring to a wound the other man had taken in the basement fight. i replied Tamlin. As you say, put that sword away from me. I'll give it to whoever I hire after you get killed. Tamlin flashed a toothy smile that was oddly endearing. You're a true skeg, you know that, he laughed. Yeah, that's what my old mum used to call me. Shawne was sitting at the other end of the room, on the foot of her bed. She unwrapped a bandage around her left elbow and inspected her cut. She considered it briefly, and then she curled her lip and replaced the bandage. With the job over and the two recruits sworn in, they were back at their apartments, three small rooms on the second floor over a bakery in the Southgate district of Silmoral. Shawnee used this room, as had the slain Kern, whose belongings she had gathered in a box. Tamlin was glad to learn that he and Cole would be sharing the adjoining room. The third room was Yellowfly's alone. Do you think his information was good, Fly? I think so. We did right by him, and besides, he knows we can find him again if we need to. He won't risk anything after seeing what you all did to his friend. On your command, Shawnee countered. Come again? We cut him down on your command, she pushed. I know, Shawnee. I know. I don't regret it either. We learned something of true value, and I've already been cleared to handle it with my own team. What happened to that wink? asked Tamlin. You let him go. I sent him off to Burke, told him to go find my associate, fellow named Ardwald. Mention my name. Ardwald will give him a good job as a woodsman, and a place to sleep. And he can make a new life down there in view of the mountains. Fair trade for what he told us about that safe house in Rol. The kid said there was someone important hiding out there right now, remember? Charnay. That he did. Too bad he didn't give us a name, but I really don't think he knew. That kid was no fool. He knew he was being given a second chance, and was too smart to get cute. Between the Lines Tale of the Manticore uses five different sections. They are the Main Narrative, DM Commentary, and Combat, all three of which you've heard by now, and two others. The Between the Lines section is mainly to discuss lore and homebrew-related topics. I've been using, and will continue to use, a homebrew world called Merith. It's comparable to Middle-earth or Westeros or other medieval England-adjacent mid-fantasy settings. Technology-wise, it's post-Dark Ages and pre-Gunpowder. In Season 1, I made up the entire map of Merith as I went. It was a kind of quantum map, where nothing existed until a character mentioned a place or travelled to a blank spot on it. For the most part, this approach went well, but I often found myself wishing I had prepared something, a very brief history of the dominant culture, in advance. Developing it entirely procedurally, I often found myself worried about getting painted into a corner, or making continuity errors. So for Season 2 I decided to make a little history generator tool. I called it Pendulum, because it used a mechanic that swung between Law and Chaos as its engine. I've used Pendulum to prepare a basic history of Silmoral. If anyone's interested, I'll publish this tool on DriveThruRPG soon, and I'm sure I'll be talking about it more in the future. For now, I just want to share the minimum information you'll need to know to situate yourself and understand this world. The story begins in the capital city of Silmoral, located in the kingdom of Camerteen. Silmoral is a big city of about 40,000 residents, with another 10,000 living in nearby satellite villages. It has a history that goes back about 600 years. Silmoral is located by the southern shore of a large lake, which is yet unnamed. The city has a cliffside castle and several concentric rings of stone walls. Although the Thieves' Guilds likely have people everywhere, this story begins in the outermost ring in the poor neighbourhood of Southgate. The village of Rull, where the Weeping Eyes safehouse is said to be, is outside the walls and to the east of Silmoral, roughly 10 miles, or a half-day's travel, from the capital. I'll post a basic map on taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com for those who would like a visual aid. Now, if you're counting, you'll know that there is one more kind of segment in Tale of the Manticore. It's called Dramatis Personae. Dramatis Personae has a couple of uses. When I describe or narrate character backstory, I'll use this section. Occasionally, I'll also use it to give flashback information, sometimes for the main characters, but sometimes for NPCs, too. Well, instead of talking about it, how about I give an example? Dramatis Personae Laris One Year Ago Roburn Gary was Eleora Gary's older brother. He was only in his mid-twenties, but even by that age, he had earned a reputation for being cruel, vindictive, and, worst of all, wildly suspicious about the men his sisters spent time with. A stocky man with a low-sloping forehead, bulbous nose, and thick lips. Some folks joked that Roburn must have a little ogre blood in him. Perhaps he did. Numerous skulls had been cracked by Roburn's oaken club, and more than a few fingers and knees broken. Most of these injuries were inflicted while on the job. Roburn was a collections man for the church. Although he was little more than a thug, he did occupy a position of middle status in the organization, and so was obeyed even by those who did not fear the considerable strength of his arm. One surefire way to get Roburn's attention was to impugn the chastity of his younger sisters, whom he watched over the way a mother bird protects her clutch. Of his younger sisters, Eliora was the youngest, and, at least in his opinion, the most gullible. When he heard that she had stolen off to the village of Rull with a couple of bottom-ranked priests, he had sworn the roof down and then marched directly to the stables before riding off in pursuit with some henchmen in tow. When he caught up with Larys on the road between Rull and Domor, there were, immediately, three things that struck him as both out of place and worrisome. Firstly, the man was sitting on an embankment with his back against the trunk of a cottonwood tree, but there was no campfire, or pack, or bedroll apparent anywhere nearby. Secondly, as he approached, the younger man did not rise to meet him or even look his way. He simply stared off into space. His eyes were open, so it was clear he wasn't sleeping, but there was no reaction or awareness. Thirdly, and most concerning, he was alone. Roburn handled the situation the same way he handled every situation. Directly. He hopped off his horse and handed his reins to the nearest man. Then pulling off his right glove, he marched up the embankment and grabbed Laris roughly by the front of his shirt. Muscles bulged as he hefted the younger man to his feet and pinned him against the trunk.
1: Where's my damn sister, Skag?
0: Spittle flecked Laris's face and his eyes met Roburn's, but he said nothing and made no effort to get free of the large man's grip. Roburn pulled Laris to within an inch of his face. His breath was hot and rank.
1: Where? Speak, puppet.
0: Laris remained mute, and so Roburn slammed him back into the tree trunk. Behind him came the sound of a horse nickering. Roburn used his free hand to draw Laris's own dagger.
1: Is this what you want?
0: The younger man had made no move to go for his weapon, but Roburn was experienced enough to know it was wise to disarm the man you threaten. He was about to toss the blade away when he noticed that it was covered in dried blood from tip to hilt.
1: Wait a minute. Care to explain this, you puny skeg?
0: Silence. From the road he heard some of his men chuckling, enjoying the sport. But it wasn't sport to Roburn. He leaned in close and whispered this time.
1: You better speak up, little spud.
0: He brought up the blade.
1: Where's my sister? out with it, or I'll cut out one of your papers with your own blade. I'll promise you that."
0: The steel tip, darkened with wintened blood, hovered less than an inch from Laris's glassy orb. Still, he gave no answer, and Laris remained silent. He made not a moan nor a whimper. His only reaction was that his mouth twitched into a crooked smile that remained on his face, even when Roburn proceeded to keep his promise. CHAPTER TWO, PART THREE, DAY ONE, NIGHT The weathered and hand-painted sign that marked the outskirts of the hamlet of Rall read, EVILDOERS WELCOME. Those two words were written in large letters. Below, in smaller print, had been added, THIS IS WHAT HAPPENS TO KILLERS AND STEALERS IN OUR TOWN. Alone, the sign would not have been particularly impressive, but it had been fitted with twine so that it swung from a gibbet, which in turn hung and slowly rotated under the crosspiece of a timber post. This gibbet was not of the slender birdcage variety, but a contrivance of rusted iron bands. They were linked, each to the other, with short chains so that they matched the contours of the occupant, a brown skeleton that grinned down over the thieves as they passed. Tamlin and Cole joked to one another to cover their insecurities. Yellowfly did not participate in the foolishness. Nor did Shawnee, who glanced up at the grim warning only briefly before returning her attention back to the road. Well, road might have been an overgenerous word. The way between Roll and Domor was not much more than a dirt path, cleared of brush but rutted and scored by the passage of wagon wheels over the years. Yellowfly had arranged for them to enter Rawl at night, and so the sun had already set by the time they arrived. He led them off the path well before they reached the lights of town and steered them towards a farmhouse to the south. Before they reached it, he paused with his quartet in the shadows of a copse of trees where they all crouched down to receive their instructions. As they squatted, the leather of their armor creaked. This time, they were outfitted for a proper fight. Shawnee and Tamlin both wore leathers. Shawnee had a short bow with a quiver of a dozen arrows fletched with goose feathers. She was an exceptionally good shot and her job would be to guard the rear of the farmhouse against possible escape. Tamlin would remain outside the house as well in case anyone tried to exit by the front door. He would also light a lantern and make sure his companions could see. Inside the building, it would be close quarters, so Cole had selected a short-handled axe for this job, while Yellowfly had borrowed Ratleg's short sword, which Shawnee had claimed earlier. It was a very well-balanced weapon, and Yellowfly regretted that he had not taken it for himself. Because these two expected to be in the thick of it, both Yellowfly and Cole wore chainmail shirts under their tunics. Having distributed various duties and given a few other contingency instructions, Yellowfly approached the farmhouse with his band following right behind him. There was a darkened barn 100 yards further off, but that did not concern him. Their quarry was in the house itself, either on the second floor or in the cellar, was Yellowfly's guess. They could expect resistance inside. According to Ratleg, the safe house's owner was ex-City Watch, and Chartoon knew those men could fight. Of course, their prey would not want to be caught and could also be expected to put up a fight. With luck, and if Ratleg's information was reliable, it would be four on two. They advanced cautiously by the thin light of the moon, which hung like a sickle in the clear autumn sky. Closer they crept, and closer. No sounds came from within the farmhouse. With luck, they could enter unnoticed and take the inhabitants completely unprepared. But luck was not on their side. The house, slightly elevated from the ground, had a wooden staircase leading up to the front door. Yellowfly scowled at it, knowing old timber was almost always noisy. But he motioned for Shawnee to sneak around the back anyway, and then put a foot on the first step, to the side, over the place he guessed it was most fully supported. A first level thief has a mere 20% chance to move silently, but Yellowfly is not of the thief class. He's a fighter. He could still make the attempt, but he'll do so at disadvantage. Here's the first roll. A 46, no need to roll again. He fails. That very first step produced a piercing squeak. This noise would be very likely to be noticed by the inhabitants, especially those in the business of protecting against precisely this kind of incursion. But just in case there's any doubt as to whether the former city watchman might hear, in answer to the squeak, came another sound. This bad luck was, more or less, covered by Yellowfly's contingency instructions. And so, when he stepped aside and pointed at the door with his chin, Cole charged up the steps and smashed his mailed shoulder into the front door. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways that you could help out. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcement on Twitter, you can pick up my little ultralight game called one shot in the dark on drive through rpg for a buck fifty and finally you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice thanks to everyone who supports the show today's review is from itunes and the review was posted by DTS DnD writes if you are a player dm or content creator this is a must he brings each character to life and in each episode shares a little more about the characters and villains he creates a gritty realism that makes encounters and struggles feel real Sound effects and music enhance the story with a balance that doesn't detract from the story. He breaks the fourth wall to explain complex situations in a fluidity that doesn't interfere with the story, but enhances it mechanically. This is the first podcast I listen to when it downloads. Wow, DDS D&D, That's a great honor. Thank you very, very much for that extremely kind review. I really hope I can continue to keep the balancing act going into Season 2 and improve all the various elements of the show. Special thanks for the compliment on the music, by the way. That means a lot. My thanks also go to the voice acting talent for this episode. Continuing in the role of Ratleg is Che from Roleplay Rescue, a show I highly recommend. We have a new cast member to introduce today too. Roburn Gary is expertly and menacingly played by Mike Hibbert from Red Oaks Creative. Thanks Mike and welcome to the cast. Now I can't end off this episode without apologizing for my quasi-UK accent. I have no idea what I'm doing and I know it shows. You can send your hate mail and raspberries to at Manticore Tale on Twitter. Or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Podcast. My email is TaleOfTheManticore at gmail.com. If I get enough, I could make some raspberry jam. I also keep a blog at TaleOfTheManticore.com where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.
1: We're going to give it another go. Um, it's a bit, more, a, a bit more zing, a bit, of zing. A bit zing. of zing, zing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ready? Hello, hello. hello. With a hello, no, no. no. <laughs> hello, hello. hello. Oh, wait, wait till I get through the whole thing. Ready? Wait till hello with a billowing hilltop. Hello, hello. Oh dear. Wait till you <laughs> get through the whole thing. No, no, I mean I I thought that was that, the whole thing. The whole thing is hello with the belowing hilltop. <laughs> okay. That's the whole thing. Yeah? Okay. Okay. That was right. Uh, that pretty much sums up the show. But if you want to find out any more, you can visit us at ww.belowinghilltop. Is it com? Does anybody know? org is it? It's <laughs> still What do we do? What do we, what do we play? And there's monsters. Um, does anybody remember? Looking around. We and, and, yeah. And we would be delighted if you <laughs> to join us around our table as we play Dungeons <laughs> Is it fifth edition? Hello? Yeah, we think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. As we play Dungeons and Dragons. In the background? <laughs> Sorry, that was me. I what was that noise in the background? There will be noises in the background as we play Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition through the classic Paizo adventure path, The Age of Worms. You can expect this. No! Quite a bit of this. Um, I'm com- this this, I've got a in my underpants And one of these Oh, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> We're on Apple Podcasts And we're on Spotify And we're on TuneIn And you can find us on Twitter And you can find us on Facebook uh, And we uh, hope you join us Thanks very much